Brothers and sisters, I invite you to take your Bibles now and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon this morning. Uh, We are going to be together in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and we are going to look together at verses 1 through 5. John 1, 1 through 5. I invite you to take your Bible and turn there with me. John 1, 1 to 5, this is God's holy word for us, his people, this morning. God's word says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is God's holy word for us. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Make not only the reading, but now especially the preaching of your word to be powerful this morning. May your truth stand forth to us. May we see the light of your truth shining. And may we welcome it. Write your truth on our hearts. You be our teacher. And we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This morning, we begin the quote-unquote New Year's season of the liturgical calendar because every year the Christian calendar starts over on the first Sunday of Advent. So, Happy New Year. Welcome. There's no balls dropping tonight. There's no, there's no late staying up, no party. It's just we start over with the church calendar. This morning, we begin the season of the liturgical calendar of Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. And one of the great themes of this season is captured in the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John, where he says, I am the light of the world. Our songs this time of year are full of light and darkness imagery to describe the first coming of Christ into the world. Let's give you a couple of examples. I just pulled these out. I grabbed our hymnal and just thumbed through and just found three quick examples. O come, O come, Emmanuel. We sing, O come, thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Or how about, O little town of Bethlehem, where it says, Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. One more. We three kings, star of wonder, star of light, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Not only is light a prominent theme in our music and symbolism this time of year, it's also a major biblical theme as well. The Bible makes abundant use of light and darkness imagery, and nowhere is this theme more apparent than the Gospel of John. This morning, we're going to begin a new series of sermons through the Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany season. And these sermons will be on this biblical theme of Jesus as the light of the world. The bulk of our series will concentrate on this opening chapter of John's gospel, specifically the first 18 verses. This section is known as the prologue of John's gospel. The prologue of John. The author of the fourth gospel introduces in these 18 verses all the major themes that he will develop in the rest of the book. And we're going to spend the four Sundays of Advent preaching through these 18 verses of John's prologue. And then we will branch out into other parts of Scripture 
that also touch on this biblical theme of light as we consider Jesus the light of the world. In our passage this morning, John 1, verses 1 through 5, we're going to look at this passage and see where John describes what I call the dawning of the light. Every single sermon is going to have the word light in it to draw out this connection of Jesus as the light of the world. We're going to consider Jesus as the light in all sorts of different capacities, all the different ways the Bible points us to Jesus as light. And we start this morning with what I'm calling the dawning of the light. Something we need to know about John's prologue, verses 1 to 18. The main thing you need to know about this prologue is that everything is heading to verse 14, the climax of the prologue. Skip down to verse 14. It says, and the word, we're going to talk about the word this morning in in verses 1 through 5, but that word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it's not a hard jump to move from glory to light, because glory is the shining splendor of God, that majesty that he has. When he goes public, to the world with his great majesty. It shines into our darkness and it looks like glory. And when the light shone on that first Christmas, it looked like the birth of a Savior, the glory of God's only Son, full of grace and truth as the Word tabernacles among us, dwells among us. That's where it's all going. That's where the action is headed to that climax Verse 14 is John's allusion to the nativity story that's recorded in Matthew and Luke. Those other gospels tell the human origin story of Jesus Christ. But John is here to tell us this morning that Jesus has a twofold origin story. Yes, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem's manger. We read the prophecy of that in Isaiah chapter 9. We read the, the revelation of that to the Virgin Mary herself in Luke chapter 1. That is the origin of Jesus that first Christmas. He was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem's manger. But that is not where the story of Jesus ultimately begins. There is an earlier origin story. And it begins at the very moment of creation itself. With the first dawning of the light of the world in eternity past. So let's begin by looking at this first origin story of Jesus as John describes it in verses 1 through 5. There's a couple of things I want us to see, two things in particular I want us to see in our text, and then we'll finish by drawing out a lesson we can take home with us from what God teaches us in his word in these verses. But first, the two things I want us to notice about our text first thing I want you to see is that John locates our passage at the beginning of the Genesis creation story. This is a story, verses 1 through, this is a passage, verses 1 through 5, that is meant to connect your mind to Genesis chapter 1. John 1 through 5 lines up very closely with Genesis 1 through 5. Here, are, just check out these clear connections between John 1 and Genesis 1. Both passages begin with the same three words, in the beginning. Verse 1 of our text, in the beginning. Genesis 1 starts the same way, in the beginning. And this is especially clear in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. John, like pretty much all the authors of the New Testament, are not sitting there with their Hebrew scroll unfurled, reading in Hebrew. They have a Greek translation 
of the Old Testament. And in Greek, it's literally, just like in English, it's the, literally the same three words in Greek. In the beginning. So that immediately, the beginning of this book should connect you to the beginning of that book. They start the same way. Another connection. Both passages state that God created all things by his word. Verse 3 of our text. All things were made through him. Speaking of the word from verse 1. All things were made through him and without him not anything was made. Not anything made that was made. Not one thing apart from him came into being. Everything came into being through this word. Well, that's what Genesis 1 is all about. Ten times in Genesis 1, we get the phrase, God said, God said, God said. Over and over, verse 3, Genesis 1, 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, 26, 28, 29. God said, fill in the blank, and there it was. He speaks the word and all things in heaven and earth come into being. That's what John's talking about in verse 3. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything is made by God's word. Another connection. Both passages state that God spoke into the darkness and created the light. Verse 5 of our text the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness. That's the first thing God does. Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God separated the light from the darkness, and one is daytime and the other is nighttime. First thing God does is he speaks into the darkness, and there's the light, and he separates them into day and night. That's what verse 5 says. The light shines in the darkness. John is there. He's reading his Greek Bible like we read our English Bible. It's a translation. And he gets to that. Let there be light. And there was light. And he's just picturing that light just sweeping into the darkness. Imagine you get home. It's, it's, it's dark as midnight at about 3.15 p.m. <laughs> these days you get in there and you've it's just pitch black you can't see a thing you fumble around the wall and and all that darkness just in an instant vanishes the light shines into the darkness and god separates the light from the darkness beautiful you can see john picturing it for us one more connection to genesis just if those three weren't enough one more both passages state that God's word is the source of life and of light. Verse 4 of our text says, In him, in that word, was life, and the life was the light of men. Light and life through the power of the word of God. And in Genesis 1, we see that God creates life by speaking. And he gives the light of his own image to shine in us. We are to be like the moon to the sun. The moon can't shine all by itself. It reflects the light of the sun, the source of light reflecting from the moon, illuminating the earth in a limited way. Aren't we supposed to be that? We're supposed to be God's images where his glory bounces off of us and is reflected into a world so that we bear his image. Let your light shine before men that they might see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven, Jesus says. Both passages say that God's word is the source of life and light. John 1, 1 to 5 is about the Genesis creation. This passage is a rewriting of the Genesis creation story in a way that puts God's powerful, creative word front and center. Front and center. The word is God's agent of creation, the means by which and according to which God brings all things into being. And notice that John pulls God's word 
where it's just a verb in Genesis 1. God said, God said, God said. The noun word isn't there. It's just the verb. He said. But here, John takes that verb, he said, turns it into a noun, and sticks it next to God. John takes that word uh, out of Genesis 1 and makes it a distinct character alongside God himself. You see this in verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. In verse 2, he, the word, was in the beginning with God. Now, in Genesis 1, like I said, it's just the verb, he said. God's creative word is simply an utterance, something he says, his world-making speech in Genesis 1. But by the time we get to John 1, something has changed. This word stands forth as a mysterious figure, distinct from God himself, but somehow still identified as God. Verse 1 again. In the beginning was the Word, and then two things. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Again, John's reading his Greek Old Testament... And he's writing this originally in ancient Greek. So I'm just going to tell you the Greek term that's translated word here is logos. So today, if I switch between word and logos, you know what I mean. Logos is the Greek word. Word is the English word. This logos is with God and also was God. What is going on here? There's a with and a was. Now, we talk about sometimes that you get upset or you go crazy and it says, he was beside himself. <laughs> Is that what's going on here? God was beside himself? No. No, that's not what's happening here. There is a, this word has a with relationship with God and an is relationship with God. It was with God and was God. How did we get here? That's not in Genesis 1. How did we get here? The journey from Genesis 1 to John 1 is a fascinating study. And I have spent hours this week trying so hard for you, my precious, precious congregation, to boil this down to a concise one-sermon explanation. <laughs> Uh, so, here we go. This is a fascinating study. I have, I have left a lot of material on the floor back in the office. There's just it's littered with notes that didn't make it into the manuscript. Okay? But this is the, the first thing I wanted us to see in this text was the connection to Genesis 1. This is a Genesis 1 rewritten passage. Second thing I want us to see is what in the world is happening with this word, this eternal word that was there in the beginning. So, okay, let's look now at the nature of this word, what it is, and let's figure out what it means that it, it's both with God and was God. This will take us to the heart of this original, ultimate, eternal origin story of Jesus. We're trying in this, in this explanation to look at Jesus in his original origin story to see him for who he is. We want to see him. We want to see the light of Christ, the light of the world. So let's push in and let's see what John is getting at. This is the heart of the dawning of the light. The journey from Genesis 1 to John 1 is a three-step thought process in Old Testament Hebrew thinking and in the ancient Jewish theology of John's day. Too often, let me just preface this by saying, too often 
we just imagine that these guys, Jews and the first generation of Christians, are just reading their Bible as though no one else has read the Bible (laughs) before them. But they're not doing that. Just like you don't just read your Bible and all your beliefs come from the Bible. No, you read your Bible in a context, a context where there's theology and interpretation and tradition Like where the Westminster Confession is like a program on your computer running in the background that you just sort of filter your Bible reading through. What what theology program was running in the background of John at this time? And not just John, but Jesus and Paul and all the writers of the New Testament. It's the Jewish theology of their day. And they're not saying Jewish theology, blah. (laughs) No, they are Jewish. (laughs) And they're developing this emerging Christian, specifically Christian theology, out of the theology they've received. And so it helps us to know the context, not just the historical and cultural context, but the intellectual and theological context, the context of people's minds. What else are they reading? What other teachers are speaking into them as they, just, as they interpret their Bibles? So that's, that's going to be part of our explanation of what's happening here. So this is a three-step thought process that involves Old Testament Hebrew thinking and the ancient Jewish folk theology of John's day. Step one. It's actually like a 20-step, but I boiled it down to three. <laughs> Step one. All right, listen carefully. Step one, words are things that do things. Words are things that do things. Modern philosophers think they're so original and genius. And there's a thing called speech act theory that you don't have to bother looking up. But it basically makes this point that words are things that do things. And they act like they invented it. Nope, it's in the Old Testament. That's where the Hebrew mind and Jewish thinking starts. Step one of this thought process, words are things that do things. Let me explain. In the ancient Hebrew way of thinking, words, spoken words, especially important or solemn words like promises and vows and oaths and prophecies, and blessings and cursings, solemn words that you speak out loud, those aren't just sounds that you make with your mouth. They are literal objects that you release out of your mouth into the world. They're literal entities that are outside you now, out in the world. Words begin as thoughts in your head. But when they leave your mouth, they become concrete realities. Spoken words are objects that have causal powers. They are things that do things. They behave like agents that act in the world. Spoken words are forces that do what the words declare. That's Genesis 1. God says, let there be, and that word makes it happen. The word brings about what it says. It has causal power. And once these words are spoken out loud, they cannot be taken back. Have you ever said something, and you wish, ooh, It's so sad someone heard me say that. I wish I could take that back. Nope. Or you ever posted something online? Ha ha, I'll delete it later. Nah, (laughs) it's out there. 20 years later, somebody will dig it up. It's just out there. Words are out there. Once they go out of your mouth. You know, the rabbis used to give an illustration that whenever you say things out loud, it's like shooting an arrow. Try, good luck chasing the arrow before it lands and bringing it back. It's already out. It's already flying out there. You can't bring it back. Words that are spoken out loud cannot be taken back. When the words leave your mouth, it's like they take on a life of their own. Let me give you uh, an example of this. 
I'll give you a human example and a divine example. Human example is this. In Genesis 27, Isaac is an old man. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is Isaac, Abraham's son. He's very old, and he's blind. (laughs) He cannot see, and he knows that his time to die is approaching. And so he wants to give his patriarchal blessing upon Esau. But Jacob wants that blessing. Jacob already swindled him out of his birthright by saying, here, I'll give you some soup if you give me your birthright. And Esau's like, fine. So now Jacob has the birthright. But that really doesn't matter because Isaac's going to put the blessing, the covenant blessing is going to go to Esau. But Jacob and his mother, (laughs) a lot of lessons here, Jacob and his mother conspire against Isaac to trick him. And so they trick Isaac. And you can go read it, Genesis 27. They trick Isaac into thinking Jacob is Esau, and Esau pronounces the blessing, excuse me, Isaac pronounces the blessing onto Jacob. And then just as Isaac finishes, they hear Esau coming. So Jacob runs out, and Esau comes in and says, all right, Dad, I'm here for my blessing. And he's like, what are you talking about? I just gave it. Esau's like, "Uh, what are you talking about, Dad? No, you didn't. And then they figure out it was Jacob that tricked him. And Esau says, well, just take it back. Just bless me. Bless me instead. Just, oh, take it back. Canceled. I didn't mean that, Jacob. You tricked me. It doesn't count. Take backsies. Redo. He, He can't do it. And in fact, Genesis 27, 36 to 37, then Esau said to Isaac, have you not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him Lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. That's the blessing. And then Isaac says, What then can I do for you, my son? He can't take it back. Once We, we, would, we would think, yeah, just take it back. You tricked me, it doesn't count. Isaac says, you can't do that. The blessing's already out of my mouth. It's already in the world. It's a thing. And it's going to follow Jacob around. And it will make sure that he gets this blessing. I can't bless you, Esau. I've already gave it away. Why? Because words are things that do things. And once they're spoken, they're out there. And you can't bring them back and you can't unsay it. Divine example. Isaiah says that God's word is like rain that waters the earth. Once the rain leaves the clouds, you can't catch the drops and put them back. That's the word coming from the mouth of God. It's rain from the clouds. Once it's descended, once it's out, you can't bring it back. And Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. I, it shall not return to me empty, but it, sh- it shall accomplish The word will do something. It shall accomplish that which I purpose. And it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It's like the rain that waters the earth and makes it bring forth and sprout. God's word, when he speaks it, it's a thing now. And it has power to do stuff in the world. Other places where God in the Psalms is said to send his word. And remember, this is the, John is reading the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And guess what the word for word is in these verses? Same word, logos. So John's reading his Bible and he's saying, oh, the logos does this and the logos does this. Oh, and the logos does that. Ah, the logos is doing all this stuff. Okay. Psalm 147.15, God sends his command, sends his command to the earth. His logos, his word runs swiftly. Psalm 107.20, he sent out his logos, his word, and healed. 
and delivered them from their destruction. Words are things that do things. And so when God speaks his creative word in Genesis chapter 1, the Hebrew way of thinking and understanding what that means is that God's word is a distinct thing that brings about creation. This is perfectly spelled out in Psalm 33. Psalm 33 verse 4, For the word, the logos of the Lord... The word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. Now, if we're just reading that, we think that the his is God. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his, the Lord's work, is done in faithfulness. But it's just ambiguous enough, if you're thinking along this Jewish way of thinking, that the, the work of the word is done in faithfulness. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord the heavens were, na- were made. By the, the word made the world. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He, the word, gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He, the word, puts the deeps in storehouses. God spoke and it came to be. God commanded and it stood firm. So who created everything, God or the Word? Yes. God did it through the Word He spoke. That's why God gets the credit, but the Word is included in the work because it's the Word that made it happen. That's how the Hebrew mind is thinking about these texts. That's how John is reading these texts. Step two in this three-step thought process. This might be the deepest step, okay? Get your, get your diving gear on. We're going down, okay? Hang with me. Step two. All right, step one. Words are things that do things. Step two. The word is equated with a biblical character called Lady Wisdom. The word is equated with a biblical character called Lady Wisdom. What is that? Okay, I'm glad you asked. Jewish theology of the time loved, especially in the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Psalms, that kind of stuff, Ecclesiastes, Jewish theology loved to vividly personify God's attributes, especially as the biblical figure in the book of Proverbs known as Lady Wisdom. Wisdom. Lady Wisdom. Now, this was not a real lady. This is just a literary character. It's a God has wisdom, perfect, eternal wisdom, and they personified wisdom as this woman who helped God make everything. And that's because it's a woman because the Hebrew word for wisdom is grammatically feminine. And so it's depicted as a woman. Lady Wisdom. This is absolutely fascinating to see. So here's Proverbs. Here's Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8, starting in verse 21. Listen, I'm just going to read it. We don't have time to walk. I'm just going to read it. Listen to this and think about John 1, 1 to 5. And just let yourself see these connections. Proverbs 8, starting in verse 22. The Lord possessed me, or brought me forth. Hebrew can be translated different ways. In Greek, it's create. The Lord created me. The Lord possessed me, or brought me forth, or created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, and I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he, God, had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he, when God established the heavens, I was there 
when he drew the circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight. Those seven days of creation, I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Oh, Lady Wisdom, beautiful description of, of a personification. It's not a literal woman in, he- in heaven. It's a personification of God's attribute of perfect wisdom. That he used his wisdom when he made the world. And so she is depicted as this figure that he, that he sort of works with. She's the master craftsman. He draws up the plans and she goes and oversees the, the work. That's the picture. Word and wisdom remained distinct characters in the Bible. But in later books of Jewish theology, like the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of Sirach, 4th Ezra, wisdom is often equated with God's Word so that the two eventually merged into a single figure by the time John is writing his gospel. There are passages in these books of Jewish theology that are around the time of John that say God speaks his wisdom, that she is a word out of his mouth, and words are things that do things. And so word and wisdom start to overlap, and by the time you get to John, John's day, they've merged. They are one figure now. The Word takes over the nature and role of wisdom in Proverbs 8. Wisdom in Proverbs 8 is just a literary figure, not a real thing in heaven somewhere. But the Word is once it's spoken. And now this Word is thought of as wisdom. They've merged into one thing. So when wisdom is said to be created or brought forth by God, it is understood in the same sense that the Word became a distinct entity when it was first spoken by God. God's wisdom Word, His Logos, His wisdom Word, was always within Him in His mind from all eternity. But that wisdom Word, it didn't become a distinct entity until the moment God was ready to create the world. At the time of the Genesis creation, before the foundation of the world, in the beginning, God spoke forth His wisdom word. That wisdom word then stood forth next to Him and was with Him, and through it God made all things. fascinating development that John is working with. Now, it's essential for us to keep in mind here that the Old Testament and the Jewish theology of John's day never thought of God's word or wisdom as a literal person, a conscious thinking self like you and me. The word was a real distinct thing next to God, but it wasn't a self with like a first-person perspective and a mind and consciousness and will and intention and and experience. It wasn't a, a person in that sense. It was a thing, but not a, not a thinking, conscious self like you and me. Nor did they think of it as a different being from God, like a second God of some kind. That was an idea within Greek philosophy of the day. And some Jews did accept it, such as Philo of Alexandria, first century B.C. Jewish philosopher. But mainstream Jewish thought of the time did not split God and His Word into two beings. There is, a, there is difference between God and His Word without division. God and His Logos are distinct but not detached. The Logos is a distinct, externalized aspect of God. 
It's an extension of God himself, not a different God. Now let me give you, a, let me give you an illustration of this, okay? First a silly one, then a, then a more helpful one, okay? I said a lot, so let's be silly for a second. Distinct but not different. Think about your lap. Everybody have a lap? You're all sitting. All right, you got a lap, right? Where does your lap go when you stand up? A girl asked me that when I was a youth leader. A girl asked me that question. I was like, I'm not prepared for youth ministry. <laughs> Lord, I can't do this. <laughs> Please let me work with the adults. They don't ask questions like this. It's never crossed your mind where your lap goes when you stand up. Has it? Be honest. I didn't think so. Okay. Where does it go? What is your lap? Is it you? Is it something else? Because when you stand up, you don't have it, and when you sit down, you do. So is it you or not? When you stand up, you don't go away, but your lap does. But if someone sits in your lap, you can say, get out of my lap or get off of me. And, the, and, and if, I sit, if I go down here and I sit on Matt, sorry, Matt. If I just plop down on Matt's lap and just, ah, Matt, how's it going? And he, said, he could say, get off of me. And I'll say, I'm not on you. I'm on your lap, silly. That's not you. Your lap's going to disappear the second you stand up. So what are you, what's the problem? Is that okay? Can I, can I try that? <laughs> no, that's not, that's not how it works. So like you are not a lap, but you have a lap. It's, your lap is distinct from you, but it's not somebody else. It's you. You see? Your lap is with you and was you. Okay? Your lap is distinct from you in one sense, but it's also it's just you in another sense. And they're both real and they're both true. All right, more, more helpful example maybe. I, I think that one's actually pretty helpful. Think of another example. The light of the sun. Right? The S-U-N, the one up in the sky that we can't see today because of the rain. Think of the light of the sun. The light shining from the sun is distinct from the star itself, right? I mean, light is not a star, right? That's not a star. That's light, but it's not a that's fire. But light's coming from it, and it's not a star. So light is not a star. But the light shining from the sun is not a second sun. There aren't two suns up there. Throw in the heat from the sun. Now we've got three suns. No, it's just the sun. The light of the sun, which we sometimes call the sun, like the sun is shining through this window, we don't mean the star traveled 93 million miles and is squeezing through the frame. No, the light from the sun is coming through. And the light is not the star itself, but it's not some other thing than the sun. It's just the sun. Right? The light is a distinct external aspect of the sun. The light is an extension of the sun into the world. And that's what John is saying. The light shines in the darkness. The light begins to shine from the sun in the beginning before the foundation of the earth. It's an extension of the sun into the world, but it's not a different sun. This is how Jewish theology understood. In John's day, this is how Jewish theology understood that the word is both with God and was God. There's distinction without division. There's difference without detachment, splitting God into two beings. The word is distinct from God and next to God, but it's included in God as well. Step three. This is the easy part. Those were the hard parts. Step three is much quicker and much easier. And this is where we make the radical Christian connection. What we've just looked at, if, if the Gospel of John had not survived, except the first five verses, and we dug up an old moldy piece of papyrus in the dry, barren sands of Egypt, and all it had was verses 1 through 5, and no one had ever heard of the Gospel of John. It didn't exist, didn't survive. It once was, it once was there, but it didn't survive. And all we had was those first five verses. Nobody would know this was Christianity yet. Because this is, verses 1 through 5 is straight Jewish theology of the day. Just textbook Jewish theology. You wouldn't be able to tell if it was Christian or not. And this is step three. 
and what makes it Christian. Jesus is identified as the incarnation of that word. The radical new last step that John takes is to say that this wisdom word of God has come into the world as the man, Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen the light and splendor of his glory. The word that was spoken into distinct existence in eternity past, formed by the divine utterance before the foundation of the world. That word was there with God in the beginning, and with him made all things. It is that very word that became incarnate in Jesus. And here we arrive at the first origin story of Jesus. This is the story of the dawning of the light, and it is the first flicker of the Trinity. The man Jesus is the flesh of the eternal divine word, the humanity that makes the word a literal person, a self, not just a wisdom personification. Jesus is a human being. As he himself says to his Jewish opponents in John 8:40, he says, "You seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God." Jesus understood himself in John's gospel to be a flesh and blood human being, a man. But that's not the whole story. Jesus is a man, exactly like you and me. But he is also the manhood of God's Word, the living embodiment of God himself, so that he can say, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Word has to be the same God as the Father, so that when Jesus says, you've seen, so Jesus can say, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But the Word has to be distinct from the Father, so that Jesus is not the incarnation of the Father, but of the Father's Word. This is how, these are the, this is the contours of how the doctrine of the Trinity gets formed later in church history, in the fourth, fifth, and following centuries. Jesus is not the Word. All by itself, Jesus is the incarnate Word, the Word made flesh. That's who we call Jesus. Before the incarnation, there's only the Word, who is with God and was God, and who is destined to become the man Jesus. But the Logos alone isn't the man Jesus yet. That's coming in verse 14. That's the second origin story, the Christmas story. John is here giving us a glimpse into the first origin story. Not the birth of the man Jesus, but the birth of the Logos, who becomes the man Jesus. This is the dawning of the light. So let's bring it to an ending this way. What does this mean for us? What do we take away from this eternal origin story of Jesus? There's one lesson. There's, I'm sure there's plenty, but let's just finish with one. One lesson we can take home with us this morning. In Genesis 1, God makes the world and creates life through his word. He speaks life into existence, and he makes human beings in his glorious image. John captures this. In verse 4, when he says, In the word was life, and the life was the light of men. The word both animates and illuminates humanity. Animates with life and illuminates with light. And yet human beings dwell in, dar in the darkness of sin. Blind and hostile to the light. Refusing to come to the light, John chapter 3. John assures us, though, that the darkness cannot prevail. In verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. No matter how dark it becomes, Christian, 
Christ will ultimately vanquish the darkness, and He will bring the night of sin to an end. That word that made the world in the beginning dawned on that first Christmas to remake the world that was lost in sin. This light came to recover His lost image bearers and restore His darkened world. And this teaches us a lesson. This teaches us that the only hope for our perishing world is the light of Christ, who alone can make all things new, just as He made all things new in the beginning. Advent is about remembering the first coming of the light into the world and longing for it to come a second time. Jesus is the light of the world, so we must labor to live in His light and to shine His light all around us in our lives. What we need is for God to speak a new Genesis word into our hearts and our lives. And, to in, and into our world. We need God to speak His Word again, to recreate us by His life-giving Word, and to guide us by the light of His will. Psalm 119, 105, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Has the light of Christ dawned in your heart today? Dear friends, are you seeking to trust in His light, or are you looking for another? Is it your desire to live in His eternal, glorious light and to bring His light to others? Oh, let us fix our eyes and our hopes today on, the glorious, on this glorious Christ, the Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Oh, come, let us adore Him and let us walk in His light together this Advent, this Christmas, and always. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that You would speak Your life-giving Word again and anew into our hearts. Pray that we have been fed by Your Word today and that we've been challenged to love this light to long for the return of this light, to spread this light wherever we go, to truly love Christ Jesus, who is the light of the world. Help us to focus on dwelling in that light this Advent and Christmas season, and we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.